An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're particularly pleased to have as our special guest, Joe Nocera, one of the most accomplished financial journalists in the country. Though, as we'll see, his interests are broad. So perhaps I should just say one of the best journalists and analysts in the country and leave out the financial part. Joe's been a business columnist at Esquire, GQ, Fortune, Bloomberg View, NPR, and the New York Times. The Times recognized that his interests and the associated research and analysis he brought to bear on those interests were interdisciplinary. He became an op-ed writer and then a sports columnist, taking on everything from energy policy to the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Somewhere, he found the time to write and host The Shrink Next Door, which was the number one podcast in America in 2019. He's the author of a number of books, including A Piece of the Action, How the Middle Class Joined the Money Class, All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis, co-written with former outside-in guest Bethany McLean and indentured the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. Joe's been honored with three Gerald Global Awards for business journalism and was a Pulitzer finalist for commentary. Welcome, Joe. Uh, thanks for that introduction. Wow. So let me ask you, what's your origin story? We, we, we find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are, both professionally and personally? Uh, the, the short answer is I was lousy at math. I went to college thinking I was going to be a math major. And within two years, I realized I was in way over my head. And so I switched to the journalism school just because I like to write, not quite knowing what I was getting into. And by the end of my college experience, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. Um, how I became a business journalist was, um, was that after two years working for Charlie Peters at the Washington Monthly, which was of course, one of the great training grounds for young journalists, um, I landed in Texas at Texas Monthly. And one of my predecessors at the Washington Monthly, Nick Lemon, had already gone there to Texas Monthly as executive editor. And he assigned me to write about a guy uh, named T. Boone Pickens Jr., who uh, very few people outside of Texas had ever heard of at that point. And I was going to do a profile of him. And it turned out that in the course of my reporting the profile, he did his first hostile takeover. And we had developed enough of a relationship that he told me that I needed, I, as I remember the phone call, what are you doing in Houston, Joe, the plays in New York? So I uh, flew to New York. I spent three weeks in the Waldorf Astoria, shuttling between my room and his suite. And, um, and that was my first business story. And uh, 
it, it, it won a few awards, but more importantly, it hooked me on business. It was just so dramatic. It was so exciting. I, I, I came to realize that, um, business, uh, was, was an amazing subject, um, that went well beyond balance sheets and income statements. So what I realized was that, you know, business at heart was, you know, dramatic business stories were as Shakespearean as Shakespeare, you know, um, love, hate, ego, drama, um, you know, motivation, um, um, and, and that's what got me hooked. And I, I didn't realize at the time that, that the experience I had had with Pickens in the room in the Waldorf Astoria was unique and that, uh, nobody before or since has ever, no journalist before or since has ever sat in the room while a takeover was taking place or also as of legal pitfalls, um, which Boone didn't seem to care about. Although I have to say his lawyers cared about a lot while I was doing this, they were constantly kicking me out of the room. So basically, you know, what I hadn't realized what this was that, that, that at the age of 29, having never written a business story before, I was being given the story of a lifetime, the kind of story that reporters just don't get very often, uh, rarely to be allowed to sit in on a, on a hostile takeover while it was actually going on. That just doesn't happen. And, um, I remember, uh, <laughs> about a year later, I bumped into the guy who covered mergers and acquisitions for the New York times back then, his name was Robert Cole. And he said, he said, I just can't believe Boone gave you that story at Texas monthly instead of us at the New York times. It's like, well, pal, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so what makes you want to really dig into this story? I mean, is there any underlying common aspect of the NCAA, Boone Pickens, energy independence, a manipulative therapist? Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, the first thing I would say is, um, I want to, I mean, this is going to sound a little screwy, but basically I'm, I'm, I'm interested in entertaining people. Um, I want them to start at word number one and go to word number, whether it's 800 in a column or 8,000 in a magazine story or 150,000 in a book. You know, I want, I want people to keep reading. So I care a lot about having stories that are interesting and entertaining and that I can write in an, in an, in a, in a compelling way. So. You know, I'm not, you know, I, I, I went to school in the era of Woodward and Bernstein, you know, and Watergate, but I, unlike many, um, journal, young journalists of that era, I was not particularly motivated to be an investigative reporter and, and, you know, save the world. I was motivated to, you know, more by the Tom Wolf type instinct of, of, of writing entertaining prose that people would want to read. Having said that, you know, as my career evolved. Um, and I did, you know, sort of become, you know, when, when offered the chance to right a wrong, I was certainly interested in doing that. So, you know, the shrink next door is a perfect example It's the podcast and not a, a, not a piece of writing, but having, but, but, you know, it, it's, you discover that your next door neighbor has been taken advantage of 
by a shrink for 30 years, A, that is interesting, and B, that does offer the opportunity to do some good in the world. Because really what happened, you know, that, 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 that shrink would still be practicing today were it not for the podcast, because the, 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 the patient, a guy named Marty, you know, had been trying for years to get the Department of Health to look into it. And he got nowhere until the podcast ran. And then the week after the podcast finished, the Department of Health opened up an investigation and eventually uh, the shrink uh, lost his license. So uh, and the NCAA is sort of the same thing. I didn't start out on the NCAA thinking I was, there was something that I needed to, you know, involve myself in to try and, you know, change the world. But after I wrote the initial story, which was really just about, uh, it was kind of a thought exercise about how you would pay the players uh, if, 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 if that became legal, or not legal, but is legal, but, but, but right under NCAA rules. Uh, after, I, after I got in, involved in it, I came to see that these, these players were being really exploited in a very, you know, um, uh, just unfair way and just wrong. Just, the, just, the system was just wrong. And these players were being screwed. And so I came to think, okay, I've got this platform at the New York Times on the op-ed page. What a great way to use that platform to try and get people to think about this differently. And, um, and, 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 and I do think that my work, along with the work of uh, Taylor Branch, and the Atlantic and a couple of other people really caused the coastal elites in particular to sit up and take notice of a phenomenon they'd never thought about before, which is the exploitation of college athletes. And I, and I do think that from the time I started writing about it from 2010, when this was a very, very minority opinion that was not held by very many people to today, you've seen this giant change in the way um, Americans think about college athletes and college sports. Let, let's talk about that for a second. I have a special interest in it. Um, in the seventies, I was actually a stringer, which is a peace worker for anyone not involved in journalism for the sports desk at the time. And I wrote a piece about the NCAA preventing athletes at Columbia university from working in their fields over the summer. Um, tennis players wanted to work as a tennis player in tuition, and that wasn't allowed. Um, so I read your NCAA story with great interest. What has changed? What, what's different today from what was there in 2010? A lot, actually. Um, I mean, the rules used to be so insane. Players could not take food back to their room. You know, so if they got hungry in the middle of the night, they couldn't have anything to eat. That's, that's changed. Players couldn't transfer without sitting out a year. Um, that's changed. There's not something called a transfer portal where players can, can switch schools easily and automatically, practically. Um, uh, players get a stipend now based on something called the cost of the, uh, the full cost of attendance, so uh, which goes beyond the scholarship. It's not a ton of money, but it's some money. Um, the, the, the most profound change is that uh, players are now allowed to make money on their name, image, and likeness. And that's a direct 
result of these various lawsuits that have been uh, tossed around over the last 15 years, uh, which the, the NCA has consistently lost uh, and been consistently ruled violating anti the, the nation's antitrust laws. But, you know, unfortunately, no judge has had the balls to just blow up the system. Because I mean, if you violate the antitrust rules, what's the solution? The solution is to say you can't violate them anymore, right? But in the case of the NCAA, they're afraid to just say you can't do this anymore because they that no nobody wants nobody wants to be accused of being the person that you know destroys college sports or whatever. So the, the, the judges have sort of. Uh, allowed various freedoms, but not complete freedom. And, you know, last year, the Supreme Court um, ruled nine to nothing against the NCAA. But it was a, the case, it was a limited case that had to do with um, uh, cost of attendance. Uh, and it was not the full, you know, players had, should have the same rights as everybody else kind of case. And one of the amazing things was a concurring opinion written by Brett Kavanaugh, um, which basically said, which would basically I could have written. I mean, that's, that, that's how uh, much, you know, the, the world has come to accept the view that players deserve the same rights as everybody else. And, you know, he basically said in that concurring opinion, you know, we'd love to get a broader case that would allow us to blow the whole system up. I mean, he basically said that. So we'll see what happens. Have you heard from any of the current generation of college athletes? No, um, they don't. They don't. They don't talk to guys like me. Um, you know, they're all under such strictures. Uh, you know, they're controlled by their coaches and they're, limits to what they can do on social media and, you know, their limits to who they can talk to in the press and no, but I mean, I have had moments, you know, I was at some event, some television thing. I can't remember where I think it was a Bob Costas thing. And anyway, I was, I was in the, in the, in the sort of green room. It was a big green room. There were a lot of people in it and you could see Mark Emmert, the president of the, of the NCAA over one corner and various other coaches and Rick Majerus. Uh, the late coach for, I think, Utah, uh, just kind of came up to sidled up to me and whispered in my ear and said, you know, you're doing the Lord's work, keep it up. And I think, and, and the other guy, it was a, you know, a quiet supporter of mine was, uh, John Calipari. Um, he wouldn't, I tried so hard to get him on the record to get him to be a participant in the book. He wouldn't do it. But, you know, I had dinner with him a couple of times and he made clear that, that he hated the NCAA and, um, he, he wanted, he wanted me to succeed. Hey, let's go back to earlier in your career. You wrote a book, a piece of the action. It's been a while now, but you described how ordinary Americans were introduced to, to what you call the money class, by which you meant they started using credit cards instead of paying cash, investing in mutual and money market funds instead of passbook savings accounts, savings, and 401ks. Sometimes this all seems so ordinary today that we forget the first credit card was only issued in 1958, and that as late as the 1960s, most middle-class people didn't have them. 
So I want to ask you to look back on those developments today, but in two ways. I'm sure there are obvious positives and negatives in terms of individuals, financial security. And I'd like to hear what you think about that, but I suspect you might have some deeper observations about how it's sort of changed more generally society as opposed to the effect on individuals. Well, um, you know, one thing it did, which is not totally a positive, is, is, it, is it caused society to spend a whole lot more time thinking about their money than they, than they used to have to. In other words, once, once your pension has been abolished and replaced with a 401k that you're responsible for, you know, you really, you're, you're, you're constantly, you know, worried about, you know, am I, am I putting enough way away for retirement? Am I saving enough for college tuition? You know, I think that's basically a negative. I actually think the whole 401k movement is basically a negative because, you know, people are being forced to pay for something that or a retirement that was once, um, at least if you were worked for a big company that was once, you know, kind of part of the deal for going to work for that company. And that, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I, I, I think that the money revolution is part of this larger revolution, which also includes healthcare, um, um, cost of, you know, just where, where, where people are just sort of kind of more, it's kind of thrown at them. You're, you're on your own, you're on your own folks and good luck to you. And, um, if you can do it and you make enough money, fine. And if you're not, you're screwed. And uh, I think that's a negative too. On the individual front, I do, I have come to the belief, which I didn't have at the time or where I was, I, that, that the vast majority of us are not equipped to be investors. And, um, uh, we don't, we lack the, 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 the knowledge base. We lack the savvy. We lack the stomach, um, to zig when everybody else is zagging. And, you know, I think that if you were, if some academic were to study this properly, they would discover that most people have lost money in the market, despite the amazing, uh, uh, run-up that we've had, you know, over the course of the last 25 years. Something else you've written about a lot is um, energy policy. And as we record this in early March 2022, Russia's invading the Ukraine. Um, and aside from the horrible personal costs, energy and geopolitics are front page news. Now you've supported more fracking in the Keystone. And the Keystone XL pipeline, even 100%. more technology. Let me just tell you, like, before we get into this uh, further, I just want to say, I used to live on the Upper West Side of New York, which is, you know, ground zero for progressivism. And the only time I've ever been accosted in a grocery store for one of my opinions was a, pro, was a few days after I wrote a pro-fracking column. And I was, you know, in the checkout line and the woman behind me started berating me for, uh, uh, being such a, a Visigoth. Well, let me ask you about your Visigoth views then. I mean, you've also acknowledged the need to transition to 
less carbon dependent planet and the reality of climate change. So I'd be curious, given what's happening today about your views on energy, climate change, energy independence, and geopolitics and, and what that mix looks like, because it's clearly front and center. Well, I think it's, you know, it's hard to have a nuanced view on this because, um, you know, if you're a climate change activist like Bill McKibben, you basically believe that the oil company should be shut down tomorrow uh, to force everybody to uh, to start using alternative energy sources, uh, you know, full time. You know, my view is that's impractical and, and impossible, and we shouldn't be thinking like that. Um, you know, fracking for oil is better than, uh, fracking for gas is better than drilling for oil. Maybe on the margins, maybe it's only marginally better, but it's still better. Um, the Keystone Pipeline is way safer, is a way safer way to transport oil and gas than putting it on a train, which is what we do now. So the idea that shutting down Keystone is shutting down, you know, oil from Canada is insane. It's, that's not what's happening. All it is is transferring it to a more dangerous form of transportation. So that's, that's part A. Part B is, you know, I, I agree with very, every president we've had since Ronald Reagan that energy independence would be an important thing for the United States. And we've seen that in Iraq. I mean, how much better off would we be if we didn't need oil from the Middle East? We would, you know, let them fight their own damn wars instead of, you know, thousands of Americans being killed in Iraq and, and so on. Um, uh, and here we are in Russia with the, same, with the same dilemma. I mean, I was surprised to see that we get any oil from Russia, but apparently we do. Not a ton, but, um, you know, enough that it would hurt if it was shut off. Um, I also think that, you know, I think it's silly to expect Exxon to be the force that leads us to the new world of, of, of uh, uh, alternative energy, uh, because, you know, what is Exxon really good at? Exxon's really good at, you know, poking holes in the ground and extracting oil and gas. You know, that doesn't mean they're going to be an expert on wind power or solar power or some alternative source. The alternative sources are going to come from, you know, innovators, entrepreneurs who think about this in a whole different way. Um, and, and, and also, Exxon won't say this out loud, but it knows, and realistic people know, we are still going to need oil and gas for decades. That's not going to go away. Um, you know, even if everybody had an electric car tomorrow, how are they being powered? You think you you, you think because you plug it into a socket, it's energy clean? Well, no, there's still some power source somewhere. And that power source, chances are that power source is powered with natural gas, which, by the way, is a big step forward from coal-fired power plants. So, so from my view, we are making incremental progress, which is probably not fast enough for the climate change activists, but but it's better than what we had before. And although I agree with the climate change people, folks, that we need to do this faster because we're kind of running out of time, um, I also think it's unrealistic to expect everybody to just give up 
oil and gas tomorrow and move to some other form of energy. Let me ask you what it maybe was a bit more uh, formal with less personal than being called a Visigoth in a, in a grocery line, but there was a little bump in the road of your career. And I want to ask you about it, not because it was a problem, but because I think you actually handled it graciously. You wrote a column about some Tea Party politicians and used what could be called inflammatory descriptions of them. You then apologized. You wrote, and I'll quote you, quote, the words I chose were intemperate and offensive to many, and I've been roundly criticized. I was a hypocrite, the critic said, for using such language when on other occasions I've called for more civil politics. In the cool light of day, I agree with him. I apologize, end quote. And I want to ask you about this, not because of the story, but because I want to know what your process and substance of deciding to apologize was and how you crafted the apology. Because every time I read an apology from a public figure that starts with, if I offended anyone, if anyone took offense, I want to cringe because those aren't apologies. They're basically statements that I said what I wanted to say, but there was blowback. I didn't expect it. So I got to say something. By contrast, your apology seemed genuine. So why do so many public figures have problems apologizing? I don't know. I've apologized a lot in my career, believe me. <laughs> I've made some doozy mistakes. Um, but that one, that was different because it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. It was something I wrote in anger. Um, and, uh, and the first critic, as you called them, to call me up and tell me I was an idiot was my daughter, who was, I think, at Politico at the time. I, mean, I don't think she was at BuzzFeed then. And, um, and she's dad, she said, dad, you know, you just, you just, you just don't say things like that. Come on. And, um, I mean, her fear was the blowback aspect, but then, you know, as I thought about it and, and as, as other mail came in, emails and so on, it's like, you know, what? they're right. They're right. Uh, I, they just, that was, it wasn't just dumb. It was, it wasn't just intemperate. It was just wrong. And I have been somebody calling for civility. I have been somebody who believes strongly in centrism and bipartisanship and, and, uh, uh, you know, politics of rationality. And so it, it was easy enough to just say, and I guess I was somewhat conscious of the, of the, the, the standard, you know, trope of, uh, of saying, if anybody was offended, I'm sorry, but, but but I was offended at what I'd done. And so, you know, that just didn't cut it. It's just like, I was wrong. It's just, it's not that hard to say, really. When your, your, your co-author of a previous book, Bethany McLean was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. She mentioned that you and she were work on another book about how the pandemics changed the economy, um, without stealing any of your thunder from when the book gets published, you want to give us a little preview of what you think some of the changes might be that have a chance of lasting? Is this hilarious? Because Bethany and I have complete, we're writing a book together and we're very aligned in the way we're writing it, but we, we, we all, we both describe it in completely different ways. So the way I describe it is that, um, 
The book is an illustration of how the various ways that capitalism jumped off the rails over the last two decades bit us in the ass when the pandemic came. And the question that's yet to be resolved is whether we can learn from that and change some of the ways we, we do capitalism in, in America. Um, you know, I mean, a perfect example is, I mean, globalization is the easiest example to explain because, um, you know, the, the economic elites and elites in general really believed that globalization was a force for good and just ignored all the people who were thrown out of work and, and who, who, who really have become the core supporters of Trump, in my opinion, but, but put that aside. Um, you know, then along comes the pandemic and we suddenly realize that, you know, all the personal protective equipment we want is held in China and they're not, they're not honoring the supply chain and they're not honoring the contracts and the Chinese leadership is saying, you know, we need these masks for ourselves. So America, you're on your own. And, you know, in, in a way the PPE issue was the canary in the coal mine, because here we are now worried about semiconductors, worried about steel, worried about, you know, worried about a ton of products that are important, that are vital to us, worried about pharmaceuticals, worried about, worried about rare earth minerals, all of which are controlled by other countries. And in our quest for, for just in time supply chains and, 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 um, and low prices, the lowest possible prices, which would allow, you know, higher profits, therefore a higher stock price, therefore a higher pay for the CEO. In our quest for all of that, we have lost sight of the fact that there are some things that we need as a nation and we shouldn't be letting go of. And it's unfortunate that Trump used the national security excuse to erect tariffs on, you know, Canadian timber. Because it, it, it's, it's, it was an abuse of the process. But the fact is, there are a lot of products where we should be able to say, we need to build 20% of X product in America to create resiliency in our economy and to make sure that our people can survive any emergency that might come. What's exciting you right now? What are you passionate about? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm passionate about this book. I'm passionate about doing more podcasts, very passionate about doing more podcasts. I, I found them, to, I found the shrink next door to be a, um, an eye opening, uh, way to, to do stories, uh, very different, very supple, very allows you to do a lot more wandering and, and, uh, uh, um, it just had more flexibility than a magazine story has. And, um, uh, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm almost 70 years old and I'm thinking I'm going to spend my seventies writing books and, um, and doing podcasts. Let's finish with a couple of quick questions. How do you relax? <laughs> I watch one hour of streaming television every night before I go to bed. What is screaming television? Street streaming, streaming. Oh, streaming. Okay. 
and I take my son to tennis tournaments. I guess that's not really relaxing, but it sure is fun. And um, uh, to watch him play. And I played some tennis myself. Um, and, you know, that's about it. I, I, I work, I mean, I enjoy working. Um, and I wouldn't say it's a form of relaxation exactly, but, but I get a lot out of it and I don't feel a need to have some hobby. Um, although I do have one that, that yes, when I'm, when I'm stuck in the middle of a sentence or paragraph or chapter, um, I'll go down to the basement and do, uh, some complicated Lego set for about an hour and that'll get me unstuck. I, I could do that. Like if I actually retired, which I never will, I would just go buy Legos and just do them forever. Interesting. What <laughs> do you, do you listen to music while you work and what? Oh music yeah. Do you no, to? no, 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 you, no, that's a terrible idea. Music's music's too important to listen to when you're working, but then you're using it as a distract. I mean, I, What's the point? If you're going to listen to music, listen to music for God's sakes. No, I, I love music. I'm passionate about music. I care about music. And so I, that therefore I cannot have it on when I'm working. So when you listen to music, what music do you listen to? Uh, I listen to jazz. I listen to a lot of Brazilian music. I mean, I love Brazilian music. Um, I listen to, you know, I listen to Steely Dan. That kind of stuff, that kind of that kind of rock and roll. I'm not really a rock and roll guy. Um, I'm really a jazz guy who has morphed towards a Brazilian music guy. I've been to, I've been to Rio twice, mostly to listen to music. Um, yeah, that's what I am. So you write a lot, but what are you reading right now? Uh, I can't really, I'm kind of not allowed to say because I'm actually reading for a podcast. Um, I'm reading a I'm, I'm reading a lot of mystery stories for a podcast I'm going to do in the summer. And I wish I could say more than that, but I can't. Are, are these fiction or true crime? Oh, no, no, they're fiction. They're fiction. Okay. Last question. If you could magically whisper one thing into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? I wasn't expecting that question. Did you put that on your list of questions? I did. Oh man, I guess I didn't read all the way down. Fire whisper wounds. I think the thing, given the world that we live in right now, I, I think the thing I'd say is listen to the other side. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest, Jonas Sarah. Joe is always a good read, and as you've just heard, an equally good listen. So thanks so much, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com. <laughs>